0: Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. If you have not, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have some amazing merch and plenty of other things for you guys.
1: back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today, we're going to a legend. A
0: legendary game. One that always tops the charts. Has pretty much been the number one spot on, like, Metacritic. IMDB, for some reason, when they have some games on there. Uh, and the other ones. you know, You know, the classics of... <laughs> Metacritic, IMDB, and the other ones definitely <laughs> tops those charts.:
1: <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I prefer all just general other ones, like our you know our podcast commenters, our discord members. those are the general other ones. let me Let me hear those the cl- reviews.
0: The classic other ones, but anyway, breaking it down, we're going to be talking about the game that really I think set Nintendo aside, one of two games that set Nintendo aside, set him into the new era set up the 3D realm of their next gen at the time and has still been the staple and been the go-to up until really Breath of the Wild came out.
1: This game changed the entire sphere and this is another legend of Zelda game and I get it like how many Legend of Zelda games are you guys going to do? But I ask a you a more. better question, how many Nintendo legend of zelda titles are they gonna make that are so good (laughs) these are amazing games they really really are and they change the industry as a whole going back all the way to the nes legend of zelda i think ocarina of time was such an influential game on the nintendo 64 an influential game on the rpg genre i think it's a really fantastic game that has elements of mystery and elements of that classic action-adventure style of game. It has twists and turns in the story. You already know that I love Legend of Zelda if you've been a fan of this podcast for any amount of time. And I'm excited to talk about this one today, and thank you for our patrons for voting for this one.
0: Of course. And so let's jump into it, and we'll talk about The Legend of Zelda ocarina of time so ocarina of time is an action adventure game developed and published by nintendo for the n64 it was released in japan and north america in november 1998 and in the PAL regions the following month ocarina of time is the first game in the legend of zelda series with 3d graphics it was developed by nintendo ead led by five directors including aiji ayanuma and yoshiaki koizumi produced by series co-creator Shigeru Miyamoto and written by Kensuke Tanabe. Veteran Zelda series composer Koji Kondo created the musical score. The player controls Link in the fantasy land of Hyrule on a quest to stop the evil king Ganondorf by traveling through time and navigating dungeons in an overworld. The game introduced features such as a target lock system and context-sensitive buttons that have since become common in 3D adventure games. The player must learn to play numerous songs on an ocarina to progress, whether through time or in various segments of the
1: game, creating different elements that need to happen. I was just going to say, every once in a while, you just kind of want to, like, rock out on the ocarina in this game. It was so much fun. Just break that thing out. Oh, Ipana, Just bring her out. And
0: and what Koji did to produce so much of this, because obviously you have those snippets when you play the ocarina. But the full song that goes along with those snippets in the certain places that you find these little elements to play in the Ocarina is such a beautiful soundscape. And I would say almost every song from the Ocarina of Time is a classic piece that someone knows.
1: It's a banger. It's a banger. That's, it's a, cla- that's it's a, it's what a group the, of bangers. I believe that's how the children referred to them uh, five years ago. <laughs> but yeah, it, I mean... We talk a lot about video game soundtracks in this, and we usually save that for later. This is one of the first games that I can remember where it's a really interactive process and not the focal point. Mm -hmm. It's not a a rock band or a guitar hero. It's not a, a game where music is the sole thing that drives a video game. I mean, it was just a really cool gameplay element that they implemented for this game that I think also ascended Koji Kondo truly into that legendary status i would say so I mean, he did so many of the early games but now he's got this game where you're actually playing his music that he's written um, with an in-game item i think that's really key it really is uh it, it it's established i mean i guess you had it
0: established in the nes eras but now coming to the n64 where you can't have more in the cartridge you can have more in terms of sound quality and sound design not only you have Super Mario 64? You, on this other end, bring in the fantastical elements of this fantasy and produce just some of the most heart-pounding, but also heartwarming music that really wraps this up. And I can't wait to get to that point of the episode and kind of break down those songs and just how integral they are. And, and that we actually see some of those in later games, whether it's in, in a different rendition of it, whether it's in just some sampling aspects of it. But Ocarina of Time really... Tests the tales of time, some might say. Oh. And it also received widespread acclaim from critics and consumers and won several awards and accolades who praises visuals, sound, gameplay, soundtrack, and writing. It has been ranked by numerous publications, you know, the few that we know, <laughs> as the greatest video game of all time. and is the highest rated game of all time on the review aggregator, Metacritic. It was commercially successful, with more than 7 million copies sold worldwide. In the United States, it received more than three times more pre-orders than any other video game at the time, and was the best-selling game of 1998. A direct sequel, The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, was released in 2000. Ocarina of Time has been re-released on every one of Nintendo's home consoles since, and on the IQ player in China. An enhanced version of the game for the Nintendo 3DS, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time 3D, was released in 2011. And Master Quest, an alternate version of the game, including new puzzles and increased difficulty, is included in one of the GameCube releases in the 3D version.
1: Now, Alex, this game was already pretty hard. I don't necessarily feel like they needed to make it even more difficult, but they did anyway, and it still remained a classic on those titles. Absolutely. So let's talk about the studio, Nintendo, obviously, and we've talked about Nintendo on quite a few podcasts now, so we're going to keep this one pretty brief. But in mid-1993, Nintendo and Silicon Graphics announced a strategic alliance to develop the Nintendo 64. NEC, Toshiba, and Sharp also contributed technology to the console. The Nintendo 64 was marketed as one of the first consoles to be designed with 64-bit architecture. As part of an agreement with Midway Games, the arcade games Killer Instinct and Cruise in USA were ported to the console. Although the Nintendo 64 was planned for release in 1995, the production schedules of third-party developers influenced the delay, and the console was released in June and September 1996 in Japan and the United States, respectively. By the end of its production in 2002, around 33 million Nintendo 64 consoles were sold worldwide, and it is considered one of the most recognized video game systems in history. 388 games were produced for the Nintendo 64 in total, some of which, particularly Super Mario 64, The Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, and GoldenEye 007, have been distinguished as some of the greatest of all time.
0: So, yeah, for this, I wanted to break down a little bit more about the N64 uh, and, and kind of what Nintendo was doing at the time and why this collaboration effort came about. I mean, it's insane to see these numbers now and be like, that is such an amazing feat for gaming at the time, which was still evolving, still, I would say almost like as teenage years, as more companies started to develop more technologies, more companies started to invest into it, and you get some... Titles that, again, we're still seeing re-released and re-released and re-released today. They're they're giving Skyrim a run for their money, and Skyrim's giving them a run for their money, but we're seeing them on pretty much every console with a little bit of an update. Now, when it comes down to development, Ocarina of Time was developed concurrently with Super Mario 64 and Mario Kart 64, or the N64, by the Nintendo Entertainment Analysis and Development Division, or the EAD. The game had a budget in excess of about $12 million, with more than 200 people working on it. Originally developed for the 64DD, which is that disk drive version of it, development was eventually migrated from disk to cartridge media due to the high data performance requirements imposed by continuously reading 500 motion-captured character animations throughout gameplay. Initially planned as a 16-megabit game, It was later increased to 32 megabits, making it the largest game Nintendo had created at the time. Early in development, the game had concerns about the data storage constraints of the N64 cartridge. In the worst-case scenario, Ocarina of Time would follow a similar structure to Super Mario 64, with Link restricted to Ganondorf's castle as a central hub, using a portal system similar to the paintings that Mario used to travel the realm. That would have been terrible. Yes. And again, it would have felt almost just like a clone at the time. Like, oh, we see Mario 64 and Ocarina came out around the same time. Basically the same game just reskinned. Yep. An idea that arose from this stage of development, a battle with a doppelganger of Ganondorf that rides through paintings was used as the boss of the Forest Temple dungeon.
1: It kind of reminds me of another 3DS uh, game that came out where they were able to basically use like a side-scrolling link um, I believe that game yes. is called A Link Between Worlds. Yes. Yes, yes.
0: So yeah, adding to that element and taking elements of some other games or some other ideas with it and applying it in. And it's always fun to see those little Easter eggs of it of like, hey, this is what we or might have had to do, but let's still incorporate it somewhere in the game to kind of even just for us internally, pay like an homage to like where we came from.
1: Absolutely. And I think that a lot of that, you know, just going back and reviewing some of these old games. We joke about Obviously, bringing them to every single console is a little crazy Mm -hmm. when there's not a huge graphical update, but when you're going back and reviewing those concepts, maybe you're thinking more about the things that you trashed and how they could work in new video games, so it's definitely interesting.
0: And while series co-creator Shigeru Miyamoto had been the principal director and producer of Super Mario 64, he was involved in the game's production and now in charge of five directors by acting as a producer and supervisor of Ocarina of Time. Different parts were handled by different directors, a new strategy for Nintendo EAD. Four or five initial teams grew over time, each working on different basic experiments, including scenario and planning, Lynx actions, transforming classic 2D items into improved 3D form, camera experiments, motion capture, sound, special effects, and the general flow of time in the game.
1: Although the development team was new to 3D games, assistant director Makoto Miyanaga recalled a passion for creating something new and unprecedented. Despite the setting being a, quote, medieval tale of sword and sorcery, Miyamoto used the chanbara, or samurai, genre of Japanese sword fighting as a model for the game's combat and was content with a positive worldwide reception. The development involved more than 120 people, including stunt performers used to capture the effects of sword fighting and Link's movement. Miyamoto initially intended Ocarina of Time to be played in a first-person perspective to enable players to take in the vast terrain of Hyrule Field better and let the team focus more on developing enemies and environments. The concept was abandoned once the idea of a child Link was introduced and Miyamoto believed it necessary for Link to be visible on screen. Originally, Z-targeting involved a generic marker. However, Koizumi changed the design to that of a fairy to make it less robotic. The fairy gained the name of the Fairy Navigation System amongst staff, and ultimately this turned into the nickname Navi, which in turn resulted in the birth of Navi's character. And the birth of Navi was a pivotal point in the story's development. So if you have any kind of negative feelings toward Navi and how annoying they were, just know it was basically the old-school GPS. (laughs) Exactly. Some of Miyamoto's ideas were instead used in Super Mario 64 since it was to be released first. Other ideas were not used due to time constraints. Ocarina of Time originally ran on the same engine as Super Mario 64, but was so heavily modified that Miyamoto considers the final product's different engines. One major difference between the two is camera control. The player has a lot of control over the camera in Super Mario 64, but the camera in Ocarina of Time is largely controlled by the game AI. Miyamoto said the camera controls for Ocarina of Time are intended to reflect a focus on the game's world, whereas those of Super Mario 64 are centered on the character of Mario. Miyamoto wanted the difficulty to be easy enough to make the game accessible to all players, and said in particular he wanted it to be easier than Super Mario 64. Miyamoto wanted to make a game that was cinematic, yet distinguished from films. Takumi Kawago, who creates cutscenes for Nintendo, said that his priority was to have the player feel in control of the action. To promote this instantaneous continuity of cinematic gameplay, the cutscenes in Ocarina of Time are completely generated with real-time computing on the Nintendo 64 and do not use pre-rendered full-motion video. Miyamoto's vision required this real-time architecture for the total of more than 90 minutes of cutscenes, regardless of whether the console had a vast medium like CD-ROM on which to store pre-rendered versions. Taru Asawa created the scenario for the game based on a story idea by Miyamoto and Yoshiaki Koizumi. He was supported by A Link to the Past and Link's Awakening script writer, Kintsuki Tanabe, and Miyamoto said the real-time rendering engine allowed his small team of three to seven cinematic developers to rapidly adjust the storyline and to focus on developing additional gameplay elements even up to the final few months of development instead of waiting on a repeated pre-rendering process. And the dungeons were designed by Yaiji Oinuma.
0: So it's very interesting to see these development, these early development processes in gaming. Before, it was insanely corporate for a lot of things to happen. You had teams of 400 doing something. You have these smaller teams, and especially Nintendo, being like, what if we, I don't know, let's say we developed three of the like most classic games of all time, just at the same time, how does that sound? How does this sound that we put out like three top tier games just simultaneously?
1: Just at the same time. I mean, if you go back and play some of those games and view the credits roll through, if you can actually mm-hmm. beat them, you will see so many familiar names in doing those. Yep. Just go and, and you can even play an easy one. Mario Kart 64. Just go beat the last race uh, Grand Prix. And you will see Mm -hmm. a million names that you recognize from all these other different Nintendo titles. They really did have such a tight-knit group that influenced so much of, you know, 90s, early 2000s gaming. And I, I guess gaming as a whole, but it is really interesting to see their thought process, especially when it comes down to the camera angles. Because that is a significant development and a significant difference between Super Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily agree that Super Mario 64 had an easier camera system because Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, you're able to lock on to enemies and things like that, which they do take the focus away from the landscape and toward the enemy and sort of create more of a miniature free flowing battle, which I I think is a, a big part of this game. Whereas in Super Mario, you were sort of rotating the camera and hoping to just hop on top of someone.
0: Yeah, I would say it was, it was more on the case of like, this is solely focused on Mario.
1: That's like the one camera
0: you get, whether it's F, like first person Mario, or it's just the camera orbiting him. We, we never leave that. Whereas in Ocarina, whether it's a cut scene, whether it's a you know, point of interest, or like, whether you said it's like a, almost like a tunnel vision battle, I think it's more on that, the, the landscape of what's going on. It's that fantastical element of one-on-one combat or seeing, you know, Castle Hyrule or, you know, seeing any of those things happen, I think is an interesting take on that camera. It's, it's simplistic in Mario, I would say, whereas you did bring that cinema quality to Ocarina of Time, making stuff feel larger than life. And, and I think it that was one of the first
1: games for me that really felt that way at time. I mean, when you locked on with the Z camera, it- It literally went into widescreen mode. It put the black bars top and bottom. And it really mm -hmm. did make it feel like this cinematic element that, you know, and then all of a sudden Link, you can jump side to side. You could do backflips. You could do front jumps and slices and spins and all kinds of crazy stuff just by hitting this Z button. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like that's really underrated as a part of those games.
0: Absolutely. Now, I want to talk... I want to jump ahead right now, because I want to, in the development cycle of it, also talk about the 3DS remake, Um, because there was just some interesting development elements in that, and we're going to touch a little bit on the basis of it later, but I want to get into the development ideas of it. So the existence of an Ocarina of Time remake for the Nintendo 3DS was first hinted at, E3 2010, but at the time, Shigeru Miyamoto maintained that it was merely a tech demo, with the possibility of being developed into a full game. Nintendo of America officially announced its production on Twitter a few months later. Miyamoto commented that the remake's timing was important, as they did not want to remaster the game too soon. He wanted to wait so that the people who played Ocarina of Time when they were younger were now in their mid-twenties. He also wanted players to experience the, quote, majestic scenery of Hyrule in stereoscopic 3D and provide a sense of immersion. Ocarina of Time 3D runs at 30 frames per second, which is actually an increase over the N64's version of 20 frames per second. And The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time 3D was co-developed with Japanese developer Grezzo. According to Grezzo's Shun Moria, some of the original game's bugs were intentionally untouched in the 3DS version. Because they were so committed to delivering Ocarina of Time on 3DS in just the way the fans remembered. As programmers, and there's a quote from them, we wanted to get rid of bugs. But the staff members who played the old game said that the bugs were fun. It wouldn't be fun if your friends couldn't say, "Did Did you know about this? So we left them in so that they didn't cause any trouble and were beneficial. If something simply could not be allowed to stand, we begrudgingly fixed it so some bugs don't appear. But we left in as many as we could so people would grin over that. Ig Ayanuma, producer of the original game, said that a desire to make Ocarina Time 3D more formidable was behind the decision to include and adjust the Master Quest campaign. So I wanted to include this bit because it is interesting to see that, again, very much how they were thinking about how the cameras, how do the cameras work? How are we going to make this quest line happen? Why is Link doing this? Shigeru's like, yeah, baby, I wait until they're in their mid twenties. They got some (laughs) cash. Nostalgia's
1: just on the tip of their mind. And then we slam it into them. The nostalgia cup just slightly tips over. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's so many things though about Ocarina of Time that those little bugs where it's like, hey, did you know about this? Sort of fit into the actual gameplay, like taking a bomb, planting it at a tree. Oh, a hole appears. Oh, you jump down. Oh, that's how you get a heart piece. That's how you get good at this game. There were so many little elements in Ocarina of Time, so many little mysteries that you just had to sort of investigate to be able to actually complete this game that, to me, leaving those bugs in makes a lot of sense. It,
0: it does, and it's unfortunate that you get a lot of those patched out now, but it's it's so much fun in modern times seeing speedrunners figure those bugs out, even in modern games. In Breath of the Wild, they've actually recently even discovered more bugs that allow traversing uh, quicker o- over different landscapes, and it's kind of like this bomb cancel where you, like, flutter the bomb in your hands to just fly across the map Those are kind of what we're talking about. It's like, oh, did you remember this thing of how easy it was to do this? Or do you remember how this happened? You could like glitch through a wall. Those are those like water cooler talking moments because now everyone's 25 and old. (laughs) Those are those water cooler talking moments that were so much fun that you don't want those patched out. You want to play the original game. That's why you're buying this kind of remake. There was nothing wrong with the first one. I just want to play it now on a handheld console or now on my Switch. I don't want things changed.
1: Right. Breath of the Wild is such a good example to bring up too because that's where they really tilted into the whole concept of they might not do things the way they designed, but they did things their way and we're still able to succeed. You know, we don't have mm-hmm. to create this perfectly aligned system. We can just make it to where this this temple has three different ways that you can complete it. And they can pick whatever way they want, or that maybe they find ones yeah. that we don't even know about. It doesn't matter, just as long as they're able to actually complete it. And with that if that means taking a bomb and blowing yourself up and then shield sliding <laughs> all the way down and basically like creating the world's longest Olympic long jump of all time just to create you know, just to have fun. I I think that they realized possibly through the three DS process that gamers like that stuff. Yeah. I mean, even going back to the Halo days. There were certain skulls that you had to use little tricks for to get. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's something that's a lot of fun for gamers. A lot of fun to kind of game break. And there are speedrunners who game break Ocarina of Time. You know, they can complete the game. And as many, I, I think the earliest one is when they go and fight the spider at the beginning of the game. Mm-hmm, I believe mm-hmm. that is the earliest frame rate glitch that you can achieve. I could be wrong on that and someone feel free to correct me. But there's a lot of different glitches in this game that that make it fun and a different experience every time that you play it. And it's really the big difference in glitches in competitive multiplayer,
0: casual multiplayer and, and single player. You know, if it's game breaking, fix it. If it makes something interesting, like you brought up Halo, like Halo 2, having like the sword cancel glitch to be able to fly out of different maps, that was fun. That was silly. It was dumb, but it was fun. And having them keep those in and, and, and keep that fun going, but also keep the same form of like, this is the game I played is, is a perfect example of that.
1: Ocarina of Time was first shown as a technical and thematic demonstration video at Nintendo's Shoshinkai trade show in December 1995. Nintendo planned to release Super Mario 64 as a launch game for the Nintendo 64 and later release Ocarina of Time for the 64DD, a disk drive peripheral for the system that was still in development. Issues regarding performance of the 64DD peripheral led to development being moved from disc to cartridge media, and thus the game would miss its scheduled 1997 holiday season release and was delayed into 1998. They planned to follow its release with a 64DD expansion disc, and Miyamoto additionally attributed the delay to Nintendo prioritizing development efforts to Yoshi's story. After that game missed its planned second quarter release slot. I'm raising my eyebrow to that one, Alex. (laughs) Listen, Yoshi's Story, not a good game. (laughs) (laughs) That, though, stay in your head. Yoshi's soundtrack is a banger. So, Mm -hmm. once again, banger (laughs) five years ago. (laughs) Throughout the late 1990s, the Nintendo 64 was said to lack hit first-party games. Next Generation wrote that, quote, Nintendo absolutely cannot afford another holiday season without a real marquee title, and that Zelda was, quote, one of the most anticipated games of the decade, upon which the Nintendo 64's fate depended. Nintendo spent $10 million on Ocarina of Time's marketing. In March 1998, it was the most anticipated Nintendo 64 game in Japan. Chairman Howard Lincoln insisted at E3 1998 that Zelda ship on time and become Nintendo's reinvigorating blockbuster akin to a hit Hollywood movie. Customers in North America who pre-ordered The Ocarina of Time received a limited edition box with a golden plastic card reading Collector's Edition. This edition contained a gold-colored cartridge, a tradition that began with the original Legend of Zelda from 1986 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Demand was so great that Electronics Boutique stopped pre-selling the game on November third, nineteen ninety-eight. Several versions of Ocarina of Time were produced, with later versions featuring minor changes such as glitch repairs, the recoloring of Ganondorf's blood from crimson to green, and the alteration of the music heard in the Fire Temple dungeon to remove a sample of an Islamic prayer chant. The sample was taken from a commercially available sound library but the developers did not realize it contained Islamic references. Although popularly believed to have been changed due to public outcry, the chanting was removed after Nintendo discovered it violated policy of avoiding religious material, and the altered versions of Ocarina of Time were made prior to the original release.
0: Well, it's interesting little little, little tidbits, little uh, little titty bits, uh, about kind of what it takes to put these games out. and it's so funny because it almost seems repeated every year that Nintendo needs that first party title. Otherwise this console will die. I think we've heard that almost every iteration of
1: a Nintendo console, every single Nintendo console title that we've done on this podcast. I feel like it's always been make or break. Yep. And I just don't, I don't understand that narrative necessarily, but, you know we're not there in the financial department we're not seeing the numbers maybe they have higher expectations maybe some of that information leaks i don't know but it doesn't seem to hold true it just seems like they can pretty much do what they want to do they're good at it people like their games people buy them i don't know maybe i'm jaded yeah i mean maybe the podcast has no. made me jaded
0: it could be, but no, I I know the feeling of it at least as fans. Like when the Switch launched, we're like, "Cool, here's the launch title, it's fun." Anyway, we're done with those. What else you got for us? And <laughs> Nintendo's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, we gotta, we got some years to like produce some more stuff. You gotta, you gotta calm down on that." It's like, Switch is dead <laughs> <laughs> unless they give us a new game. So yeah, it's, I think Nintendo's always kind of had that because. For the most part, third-party Nintendo games are hit or miss. It's the reality it's always been. You've got some classics that have come out of it, but you got a lot of stinkers. You know, with a game library of 300 some odd games, you're not going to have all good ones. You're going to have a lot of stuff that may not be the best production quality. So I get the idea of the hype of needing like a first-party title, but they've always been pretty good.
1: It feels like Nintendo in general, always package some type of first-party game. I think that they view it possibly different from the other consoles, and obviously, there are bundles that you can get all the time that have some kind of, you know special print on the console, a new sure. game, maybe not in this current era, because you can't get a console. But, Mm -hmm. you know, for a while there was all these special editions with some type of reference to these, you know, blockbuster games. And there was a focal point of this is going to be our game of the year. This is going to be the game that puts us on the map. This is going to be the game that saves us from financial ruin. And at a certain point, it's just kind of like, are you in financial ruin? Are you really, though? Are you just disappointed? So.
0: That's exactly it. Because, again, as we had said, it continued on to a 3DS version. And I want to talk about the 3DS marketing, too. I want to lump all this together because this almost felt like like a second chance, second coming of this game and this whole reiteration of, like, almost producing the ads I think they wanted to do but didn't at the time are now coming to, like, the present day of when it's coming out to 3DS. So in Australia anyone who pre-ordered the game from EB Games could receive the Ocarina Edition, which included a playable ocarina that sports the Triforce symbol, two music sheets featuring songs from the game, and a poster. In Greece, anyone who pre-ordered the game from Nintendo's online store could receive five bonus items. The items were an ocarina, a baseball hat, a keychain, a sleeve for the 3DS, and a can of Deku Tree nut seeds. In the UK, Anyone who pre ordered the game would get a free game case with a North American collector's cover and a double sided poster. And anyone who pre ordered the game from Play.com got a bonus slip case for the 3DS console featuring the same artwork as the UK game box. In Japan, US, UK, Australia, and New Zealand, anyone who registered the game through Nintendo's Club Nintendo service had received a free copy of the game's official soundtrack. In June 2011, Actor and comedian Robin Williams starred in a commercial to promote the game along with his daughter, Zelda Williams, whom he had named after the character from the series. In Japan, Nintendo utilized boy band Arashi to advertise the game in television and print spots. Nintendo ran TV advertisements around the release of Ocarina of Time 3D, showcasing its new features. Online takeovers appeared on websites during release week, while a print campaign ran in specialist magazines. Advertisements ran again throughout the summer season. The retail cartridge of Ocarina of Time 3D was discontinued in early 2015, leading to high prices on the secondary market, though the eShop digital download remains available for consumers, well, not for long. In March 2016, Ocarina of Time 3D was re-released under the Nintendo Selects label.
1: Alex, would you like to take a guess who bought the Ocarina of Time 3D version on the second-hand market about two weeks before the Nintendo Selects <laughs> version was released? Who might that be, Derek? I'm not sure. <laughs> but I'm sure that they were frustrated. I'm sure it's just a, just a fool, some might say. Yeah, definitely a fool. I'd agree <laughs> with that. So... Yeah, I I mean, so many things here that they did right. I love, you know, including Robin Williams, rest in peace. You know, obviously love the the Legend of Zelda series, enough to name his daughter after it. Mm -hmm. Tons of actual physical marketing, which I am a huge fan of. So, very cool. The Ocarina, obviously the easiest sell for people to get this game. Who doesn't love it? Who's in love a, like physical? We've talked about this plenty of times. Physical rewards by the way to our hearts. Good physical rewards. Because sometimes, like, you know, <laughs> I bought something recently that's got like a sticker book or something. I'm like, uh, Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I don't know about
0: those. Good physical rewards that are actually worth it and not just a random poster from GameStop for your pre-order are amazing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> So, you've probably played it if you're listening to this podcast, and if you haven't, you have plenty of opportunities to do so. It's on the NSO right now, on the expanded version, but let's talk about the gameplay. The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time is a fantasy action-adventure game set in an expansive environment. The player controls series protagonist Link from a third-person perspective in a three-dimensional world. Link primarily fights with a sword and shield, but can also use other weapons such as projectiles, bombs, and magic spells. The control scheme introduced techniques such as context-sensitive actions and a targeting system called Z-targeting, which allows the player to have Link focus and latch onto enemies or other objects. When using this technique, the camera follows the target and Link constantly faces it. Projectile attacks are automatically directed at the target and do not require manual aiming. Context-sensitive actions allow multiple tasks to be assigned to one button, simplifying the control scheme. The on-screen display shows what will happen when the button is pushed and changes depending on what the character is doing. For example, the same button that causes Link to push a box if he is standing next to it will have him climb on the box if the analog stick is pushed toward it. Much of the game is spent in battle, but some parts require the use of stealth. Link gains new abilities by collecting items and weapons found in dungeons or in the overworld, similar to the Link games of old, the Legend of Zelda games of old, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not all are required. Ocarina of Time has several optional side quests and minor objectives that the player can choose to complete or ignore. Completing the side quest usually results in rewards such as new weapons or abilities. In one side quest, Link trades items he cannot use himself among non-player characters. And this trading sequence features 10 items and ends with Link receiving an item that he can use, the two-handed Bigoron Sword, the strongest sword in the game. In another side quest, Link can acquire a horse. This allows him to travel faster but attacking while riding is restricted to arrows. Link is given an ocarina near the beginning of the game, which is later replaced by the Ocarina of Time. Throughout the game, Link learns 12 melodies that allow him to solve music-based puzzles and teleport to previously visited locations. The Ocarina of Time is also used to claim the Master Sword in the Temple of Time, and when Link takes the sword, he is transported seven years into the future and becomes an adult. Young Link and Adult Link have different abilities. For example, only Adult Link can use the fairy bow, and only Young Link can fit through certain small passages. After completing certain tasks, Link can travel freely between the two time periods by replacing and taking the sword. And that's a similar concept in a lot of Legend of Zelda games, where there is Mm -hmm. this time period where you're going back and forth, things were good, things are bad. And there are different pathways that existed, don't exist anymore. A very, very common theme within these Zelda games and make them just a really interesting, almost like three-dimensional puzzle to me. Yeah. Where you just, you really have to think about where you've been. Is there something different in this path that I'm at right now that, wouldn't have been there in the past that is there now or, or vice versa. And it it just makes you think beyond the typical, like, dungeon-style games and make them, you know, just a little bit more complex. And, and that's why I really love these games.
0: Well, and, you know, we give it to Nintendo for, and we make fun of it for always having some of the same story arcs. Mario's always saving Princess Peach. Link's always trying to save Zelda from Ganon or some form of Ganon in a way. But yeah, the the time element is, it seems to be always included, even in Breath of the Wild. You're not seeing time necessarily pass as it does going seven years back and forth, but you are set to basically be recovered right at the beginning of the game because you received a grievous wound, and you wake up in the future. And you're trying to figure out what's going on and like unlock these memories of it. Um, So there's a lot of those time elements that are included that are retelling of the same story, but. Does it so well. So let me break down that story, the differences of it, what we have going on, and how this shifts into that 3D realm. So Ocarina of Time is set in the fictional kingdom of Hyrule, the setting of most of the Legend of Zelda games. Hyrule Field serves as the central hub connected to several outlying areas with diverse topography and the races of Hyrule. The fairy Navi awakens Link from a nightmare in which he witnesses a man in black armor pursuing a young girl on horseback. Navi brings Link to the Great Deku Tree, who is cursed and near death. The Deku Tree tells Link a wicked man of the desert cursed him and seeks to conquer the world, and that Link must stop him. Before dying, the Great Deku Tree gives Link the spiritual stone of the forest and sends him to Hyrule Castle to speak with Hyrule's princess. At the Hyrule Castle Garden, Link meets Princess Zelda, who believes Ganondorf, the evil sorcerer Gerudo king, is seeking the Triforce, a holy relic that gives its holder godlike power. Zelda asks Link to obtain the three spiritual stones so he can enter the sacred realm and claim the Triforce before Ganondorf reaches it. Link collects the other two stones, the first from Darunia, leader of the Gorons, and the second from Ruto, princess of the Zoras. Link returns to Hyrule Castle where he sees Ganondorf chase Zelda and her caretaker Impa on horseback, like in his nightmare, and unsuccessfully attempts to stop him. Inside the Temple of Time, he uses the Ocarina of Time, a gift from Zelda, and the spiritual stones to open the door to the Sacred Realm. There he finds the Master Sword, but as he pulls it from its pedestal, Ganondorf, having snuck into the temple after Link,
1: appears and claims the Triforce. Seven years later, an older Link awakens in the Sacred Realm and is met by Reuru, one of the seven sages who protects the entrance to the Sacred Realm. Reuru explains that Link's spirit was sealed for seven years until he was old enough to wield the Master Sword and defeat Ganondorf, the sorcerer king of evil, who has now taken over Hyrule. The seven sages can imprison Ganondorf in the Sacred Realm but five are unaware of their identities as sages. Link is returned to the Temple of Time, where he meets the mysterious Sheik, who guides him to free five temples from Ganondorf's control and allows each temple's sage to awaken. Link befriended all five sages as a child. His childhood friend Soraya, the sage of the Forest Temple, Darunia, the sage of the Fire Temple, Rudo, the sage of the Water Temple, Impa, sage of the Shadow Temple, and Nabooru, leader of the Gerudos in Ganondorf's absence, the sage of the Spirit Temple. After the five sages awaken, Sheik reveals herself to be Zelda in disguise, and the seventh sage. She tells Link that Ganondorf's heart was unbalanced, causing the Triforce to split into three pieces. Ganondorf acquired only the Triforce of Power, while Zelda received the Triforce of Wisdom and Link the Triforce of Courage. Ganondorf appears and kidnaps Zelda, imprisoning her in his castle. The other six sages help Link infiltrate the stronghold. Link frees Zelda after defeating Ganondorf, who destroys the castle in an attempt to kill Link and Zelda. After they escape the collapsing castle, Ganondorf emerges from the Rebel and transforms into a boar-like beast named Ganon, using the Triforce of Power, knocking the Master Sword from Link's hand. With Zelda's aid, Link retrieves the Master Sword and defeats Ganon. The Seven Sages seal Ganondorf in the Dark Realm. Still holding the Triforce of Power, he vows to take revenge on their descendants. Zelda uses the Ocarina of Time to send Link back to his childhood. Navi departs and young Link meets Zelda in the Castle Garden once more, where he retains knowledge of Hyrule's fate, starting with Hyrule's decline. So, a
0: lot to bear as a child to take on, to be like, ah, things are all okay around here. What are you worried about, Link? Well, I just saw the future demise of your kingdom and had to fight through and save your life, but I can't say anything because I am the only one who knows.
1: Yeah, definitely a tough burden to bear, but at the same time, he could just kind of be like, you know, I'm gonna die, I'll live again in a few hundred years or something. I don't know what's going on, so... You guys are kind of on your own. Good luck, though. (laughs) It's good luck. It's perfect. (laughs) So story, again,
0: very cut and dry if you just take the outline of it. But adding that time element of it, of basically having been dead or sealed away for seven years and then be able to travel back and forth to do certain things, it really changed the landscape up. And we see that in later games where you take, like, the same map, basically, but alter it whether through time, whether through different ambitions of different characters, it's a cool way to reuse assets, but still feel fresh.
1: Yes, I agree. There, there are slight alterations between so many of the characters that make them recognizable, but make them different. And so you mm-hmm. can sort of, especially like, think about this game and then think about um, breath of the wild, where you have the different champions, yeah. you know, they're, they're, things that you can recognize about the champions that you can recognize from a lot of the characters from this game, and they exist in so many Zelda titles. And you sort of get this idea of who they are and who they're supposed to be in the future, but it's never telling. It's never making the puzzles any simpler. It's sort of giving you a pathway into what should I be doing right now, but not giving away the answer. And I think that's what makes these characters so special, and especially considering, oh yeah, when this game came out in 1998, you didn't have a lot of that history that you got, um, especially when they developed the timeline after Skyward Sword, Mm -hmm. that does sort of tie things in together a little bit tighter. You didn't really have that, and so this world really felt like the first true built world. I mean, such a massive... 3D map with all of these different people interacting in different ways, different tribes, different lifestyles. And you had to adapt to every single one of those in order to complete this game. It was a lot of fun. It absolutely was. And it it really made it,
0: like you said, like having these characters that are distinct, but even in that that that, that transitional period of the seven years, they're I don't want to say subtle, but it's enough to know that it's a different character, but the same. It's grown up. Seven years passed. whether they've become more of an important role in their area or just that like, hey, like I'm an adult. I'm acting like an adult now. It's it's an interesting transition that I think it's it's really cool.
1: I think it's a really great commentary as well, because it the landscape obviously goes from a very lighthearted map to a very dark one. And playing mm-hmm. as young Link is not nearly as exciting as playing as old link. Sure. So it's like we're 30 now, Alex. So it's kind of like that where (laughs) 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 it's like um, all the, the people that made the legend of Zelda were just kind of telling us what it was going to be like. And we just didn't know.
0: Just didn't know. Just know. But I will say this before we end that sour note, (laughs) I'm going to go to a good note, like a G note. Over in the music <laughs> section of Ocarina of Time. Like a brown note. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, everyone get ready to prepare your pants because Ocarina of Time's music was written by Koji Kondo, the composer in charge of music for most of the games in the Legend of Zelda series. In addition to characters having musical themes, areas of Hyrule are also associated with pieces of music. This has been called leitmotif in reverse. Instead of music announcing an entering character, it now introduces a stationary environment as the player approaches. In some locations, the music is a variation of an ocarina tune the player learns related to that area. Beyond providing a backdrop for the setting, music plays an integral role in gameplay. The button layout of the Nintendo 64 controller resembles the holes of an ocarina in the game, and players must learn to play several songs to complete the game. All songs are played using the five notes available on an ocarina, although by bending pitches via the analog stick, players can play additional notes. Kondo said that creating distinct themes on the limited scale was a major challenge, but feels that the end result is very natural. The popularity of Ocarina of Time led to an increase in Ocarina sales, as it does. The official soundtrack of Ocarina of Time was published by Pony Canyon and released in Japan on December 18, 1998. It comprises one compact disc with 82 tracks. A US version was also released, although with fewer tracks and different packaging artwork. Many critics praised the music in Ocarina of Time, although IGN was disappointed that the traditional Zelda overworld theme was not included. In 2001, three years after the initial release of Ocarina of Time, GameSpot labeled it as one of the top 10 video game soundtracks. The soundtrack, at the time, was not released in Europe or Australia. In 2011, however, a 51-track limited edition soundtrack for the 3DS version was available in a free mail-out through a Club Nintendo offer to owners of the 3DS edition as an incentive to register the product. The original musical theme for the Fire Temple, as Derek had said, was altered for including, you know, Islamic chants and basically said like hey, we don't use religious iconography or any sounds, so had to be altered. Hero of Time, an orchestral recording of Ocarina of Time's score performed by the Slavic National Symphony Orchestra was released by video game label Materia Collective in 2017. A vinyl version was published by I am 8bit. And it was nominated for Best Game Music Cover Remix at the 16th Annual Game Audio Network Guild Awards.
1: And there's tons of um, lo-fi playlists of Zelda music Mm -hmm, on Spotify mm -hmm. and SoundCloud and all kinds of things. Such fantastic melodies. Just that, I mean, it has to be Nintendo's best work. It has to be Koji Kondo's best work. Just so iconic, so grandiose and simplistic at the same time, just really adds an element to this game. I mean, really, is there a Zelda game that you want to play on mute? I don't. No, There are There are plenty of games that I want to play on mute, but Legend of Zelda? No, it would feel so empty. The music in Mm -hmm. these games, one of the most iconic of all time, and such an amazing work of art um that i love very very dearly
0: absolutely again as you said some of if not the best work uh produced right alongside the game that came out right before it super mario 64 i mean it was a whole different vibe it wasn't as like beautifully orchestrated and grandiose
1: but it was in its own way it was they they definitely hit a very very good successful path on the N64, Mm -hmm. but of course, there are other versions of this game, as we said, very available. Nintendo ported Ocarina of Time to its next console, in fact, the GameCube, as part of the Legend of Zelda Collector's Edition, which was a compilation of Zelda games. The port runs at a resolution of 640x480, which quadruples that of the original and supports progressive scan. Another GameCube release included the original game and a second more difficult version titled Master Quest that was included as a pre-order bonus with The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker released in 2002 in Japan and North America and included in GameCube bundles worldwide. It was also given to those who registered certain hardware and software or subscribed to official magazines and clubs. In November 2003, Ocarina of Time was ported to China's IQ Player as one of the five games available on its release. In February 2007, Ocarina of Time was released for the Wii Virtual Console service for 1,000 Wii points. This version is an emulation of the Nintendo 64 version. As controller vibration is unsupported, the Stone of Agony item, which employs vibrations via the Nintendo 64 Rumble Pack controller accessory, has no function. A five-minute demo of the game can be unlocked in Super Smash Bros. Brawl, and Ocarina of Time was re-released on the Wii U Virtual Console worldwide on July 2nd, 2015, this time including the original controller vibration. It was also released on the Nintendo Switch on October 25th, 2021 as part of the Nintendo Switch Online subscription service, of course, only if you bought the expanded version. Mm-hmm. Now, I,
0: I want to talk a bit more about Master Quest. This is a very interesting element that is added in before we even really asked for like a new game plus mode, um, and that's kind of what Master Quest delivers. It de- it delivers a basically harder version of it. And so, after completing Ocarina of Time, Nintendo developed a new version of the game for the then-unreleased 64DD Peripheral with the working title Ura Zelda, commonly translated as Another Zelda. Described as a second version of Ocarina with rearranged dungeons, it contains new content, some that had been cut from Ocarina due to time and storage constraints. In 1998, Ura Zelda was delayed indefinitely following problems with the development of the 64DD and was cancelled due to the 64DD's commercial failure. In August 2000, Miyamoto stated that Ura Zelda had been finished and that no online functions had ever been planned. Ura Zelda was ported to the GameCube in 2002 in Japan as Zeruda no Detsutsu, Toki no Ocarina GC Ura, And in 2003 in North America and Europe, as the simpler title, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time Master Quest. Probably not simpler, (laughs) just easier for me to say. (laughs) According to Miyamoto, Uru Zelda was simple to port as it used few of the 64DD's features. Master Quest uses the same engine and plot of Ocarina of Time, but with increased difficulty and altered dungeons and puzzles. IGN's Pierre Schneider gave Master Quest a mostly positive review. Likening the concept to the second quest of the original Legend of Zelda. He felt that some redesigned areas were poorer than the original Ocarina of Time and speculated that they may have been constructed from, quote, second choice designs created during development. He described the port as graphically improved, but containing no substantial improvement to the frame rate. He also expressed that controls translated to the GameCube controller felt a bit clumsy. Nonetheless, he summarized Master Quest as a sweet surprise for any Zelda fan and wrote that he would have recommended it even at full price. Zachary Lewis of RPG Gamer praised the revised puzzles, which required precise timing and find new uses for the Ocarina items, but wrote that players would be enthralled or frustrated by the increased difficulty. So you you, you can see why people, again, Derek, like you said, like, either really enjoyed a harder version of it, or like, ooh, more of a challenge, or like, mm, the first one was challenging enough. I don't really need to be, like, tested, where, like, something can almost kill me in one hit. I'm I'm good not having that. I'm good playing the game and having some fun. Right. They, for
1: basically since the beginning of this series, they've always kind of had this harder mode that you could always access. It was an interesting concept, just even going back to the, the NES days and so trying to sort of recreate that in this new 3D world where they had already kind of pushed the limits of what they could fit into a cartridge is really a lot more interesting than i think it gets credit for and you know going into i think the zelda of now like breath of the wild you can go in and play the master mode you skyward sword play the master mode there is that still mm-hmm. that extra challenge that they haven't given up on that they really take into consideration what a good realistic balance is for how do I make this game not so easy that everyone just runs through it and gets bored? How do I not make it where it's so challenging that no one wants to play it? Let me find that happy medium and then sort of like innovate that new game plus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So definitely a really interesting thing them and of course legend of zelda has had a lasting legacy especially the ocarina of time and after publication the ocarina of time was featured on a number of compiled lists of best or most influential games it was ranked the greatest video game of all time by numerous publications including computer and video games edge entertainment weekly game trailers IGN, Next Generation, Nintendo Power, Game Informer, SLAN, FHM, and PALGN. It also appeared on other lists of greatest games, including those of Electronic Gaming Monthly and IGN, and the game was placed second in official Nintendo Magazine's 100 Greatest Nintendo Games of All Time, behind only Super Mario Bros. for the NES. Game Informer ranked it as its 11th favorite video game of all time and described it as untouchable. In May 2011, IGN held a tournament-style competition celebrating the 25th anniversary of the original Legend of Zelda's release in which fans voted Ocarina of Time the greatest Zelda game. It beat Majora's Mask in the final round, actually. And Ocarina of Time has consistently been placed at number one in Edge's top 100 games lists. A staff voted list in January 2000, a staff and reader voted list in 2007 of July, and a list of the 100 best games to play today, in March of 2009. And a 2013 readers poll selecting the 20 best games released since the magazine's launch in 1993. Edge concluded its 2009 list with, quote, Ocarina of Time is here in the list, not because Nintendo had the power and wisdom to make a great game, but because it had the courage to make a unique one. And in 2022, the strong National Museum of Play inducted Ocarina of Time to its World Video Game Hall of Fame, so a lot of staying power. With that, I mean, you look at all those reviews going from 2000, 2007, 2009, 2013, you know, 2009, 2022, it doesn't matter. It's a great game that stands the test of time. And of course, reception for the Master Quest and Virtual Console re-releases was positive. While some considered aspects of the graphics and audio to be outdated, most thought that the game had aged well. The Master Quest version holds an average score of 89.5% on game rankings and a 91 out of 100 on Metacritic. IGN said in their review, Ocarina of Time has aged extremely well, and noted in regard to the game's graphics that while the textures and models look dated, the game's wonderful visual presentation stood the test of time. Game Revolution said that although the game has noticeably aged compared to brand new RPGs, it's still a terrific game, awarding a 91 out of 100 points. In 2007, former GameSpot editor Jeff Gerstmann gave the Virtual Console port 8.9 out of 10, writing, even after nine years, Ocarina of Time holds up surprisingly well, offering a lengthy and often amazing adventure. And in November of 2021, enthusiasts fully decompiled the ROM into human-readable C code. In January of 2022, a group called Harbor Masters announced that their PC port was 90% complete, and the port was later publicly released in March of 2022. Nintendo, don't listen to this. (laughs) So, Derek, as you said, like,
0: this legacy... Of this game, I know we've we've we can say it's on these top lists all over, but it stands the test of time, and I think that's one of my favorite quotes we've had, which is, "It's here on the list not because Nintendo had the power and wisdom to make a great game, but because it had the courage to make a unique one." And you know, especially reading this in two thousand nine as a list, I mean, you had a lot of copy paste games coming out at that time, just trying to like make a quick buck, sell those out, and that's really why Nintendo. Keeps going. It it, it's not afraid to make fun games or interesting games that thinks it want to wants to make. Whether it's Mario in paper form or Yoshi as yarn or Kirby eats a car and then there's now a car, (laughs) it tries out these silly things that make people want to play, even if it breaks from the mold. I mean, we've seen in Zelda. Zelda's had what at least five or six different art styles throughout. Um, maybe even more. Kind of how you
1: how oh would you classify each Yeah, game. yeah i mean obviously there's the top down like the old styles you have the 3d styles mm-hmm. just as a, a general classification and then of course you have top down styles that like we said before like a link between worlds there's definitely a different art style in that a link to the past mm-hmm. versus the original legend of zelda i mean they have a uniqueness to them and i think I mean, yeah, they made Link's tunic blue, man. I mean, they're not willing yeah, to I've, or they are willing to make changes that most people would consider Waker. controversial. It's like if you took Master Chief, said, you know what, he's not gonna have green armor anymore. It's gonna be red. Oh no, that's just the showrunners. <laughs> um, but no, if you
0: look even like Wind Waker, Wind Waker was such a stark difference in style. Oh, yeah. Not just in Art style, which is which is beautiful in its own way, it also changed the story. Yep, the story is the same, but is so vastly different and told in a different way. That's like this fun, weird alternate universe. It's very much how uh, Marvel handles Spider-Man, and how they handle like having these different versions of Spider-Man, these different universes for it. That's how I see. That's how I really see Link for a lot of this. Is these, these different universes that links in where it's all concurrently happening in a way, but it's all in a different style. And I, I think that's such a cool way to be brave enough to take that on and know that, yeah, this will work. Or, well, you know what?
1: We like it. Do you think we'll ever get, uh, on that note, do you think we'll ever get um, Ganon is the Triforce holder for courage? Um, maybe a Zelda has the power. Yeah. Maybe Link has the wisdom. They team up against Zelda. Maybe Link has... The power one. That would be an interesting concept.
0: Well, yeah. And you have a whole new Zelda game announced. What was that? Last week, week and a half ago or so. um, That is just exciting that we're getting this Breath of the Wild sequel that we've been asking for. And even that is in that same art style. But it's not. It's a whole different feel to it. Even just in trailer-esque-ness to me. Um, So it is really cool to see that kind of universe Universe thing, that multiverse thing that we're talking about, kind of happened in real time.
1: Yeah, I think that it's a really great. It is a little comic booky in its in its origin, in sure. my opinion. But it's a lot of fun. I mean, that that's not a bad thing. I don't I don't mean to say it in that way. Uh, look at the MCU. I mean, yeah. things like that are highly successful, and people, when you develop a good character, are willing to stick with it for a long time. Superman was invented like in the 40s, you know, and or the 30s yeah. even. I don't even know. I mean 30s, people yeah, still want to see his movies. Yeah, so it's, it's, it still comes out. So yeah, very very cool. Um glad that they've stuck with these characters and I'm excited for that Breath of the Wild 2 sequel. I actually think that that one is a really interesting one to talk about just because to me it feels sort of unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Like I know that Ocarina of Time to Majora's Mask is sort of like the direct sequel. Sure. I know that they've sort of uh, tried to make the connections in the timeline as well, but I think that this one had a really underwhelming final boss that now is going to be this super B.A. villain mm-hmm. to go into this next game, and I I don't know. I'm I'm really excited for that one. I think it's taking Legend of Zelda in a totally different direction, and... I've always loved what they've done. So why would I start doubting it now?
0: Yeah. And, and I think that really talks about the impact and the long lasting that we've had. Cause we've talked about that. If you've made a game or a 3d game or any platform or game, or just any game. It's pretty much Mario or Zelda you've borrowed from. And I want to talk about that. So one thing that's long lasting is that the legend of Zelda Ocarina of times gameplay system introduced features such as a target lock system and context sensitive buttons that have since become common elements in most three d adventure games. And multiple members of the video game industry have expressed how the game impacted them and the industry itself. Rockstar Games Vice President of Creativity, Dan Hauser, stated in 2012, quote, Anyone who makes 3D games who says they've not borrowed something from Mario or Zelda or the N64 is lying. Rockstar founder and Grand Theft Auto director Sam Hauser, little bro action, also cited the game's influence, describing Grand Theft Auto 3 as, quote, Zelda meets Goodfellas. Okami director Hideki Kamiya from Capcom and Platinum Games said that he had been influenced by Zelda when he developed Okami. Soul Reaver and Uncharted director Amy Hennig from Crystal Dynamics and Naughty Dog cited Zelda as an influence for the Legacy of Cain series, noting Ocarina of Time's influence on Soul Reaver. Dark Souls creator Hidetaka Miyazaki from, from Software said, quote, The legend of Zelda became a sort of textbook for 3D adventure games. Ico director Fumito Ueda From Team Ico, cited Zelda as an influence on Shadow of the Colossus. And Darksiders director David Adams cited Zelda as an influence on his work. CD Projekt Red, who we know from The Witcher, Cyberpunk 2077, cited Zelda as an influence and basically the spark of The Witcher series and a lot of those fantasy elements The Witcher brought on to tie in to the game books. Or I guess the books before the games. So the book games, game books, whatever you want to call it. And Final no one Fantasy reads books? No, nerds. books. They're just games now. <laughs> Final Fantasy and the third birthday director Hajime Tabata from Square Enix cited Ocarina of Time as inspiration for the seamless open world of Final Fantasy 15. So it's it's so cool to see just these influences that not only Legend of Zelda, but Ocarina of Time specifically had on a lot of these game devs. Game makers, games themselves. And we see it. And I think Dark Souls has kind of gone to their own right as well. A Souls Born style game, a Dark Souls like game. You know, we, we see that kind of reach the echelon of Zelda like game. And, and it's so cool to see that long lasting effect and how Zelda overall has shaped what you and I have played since childhood, Derek. That like the Legend of Zelda has shaped most of the gaming sphere.
1: you going to make me all nostalgic, man. <laughs> yeah, the Soulsborne example, I think, is a really like another great one. Soulsborne games influencing like Star Wars games, mm-hmm. for instance. That's crazy. What a crossover. Do you imagine? First of all, Star Wars video games just ever happening. You know, if you're a kid that grew up in the late 70s or early 80s, that's pretty crazy in itself. And that's mm-hmm. sort of the same feeling. I think that you and I have for playing, you know, Ocarina of Time and knowing, I mean, you and I were seven, eight years old when this game came out and it, we recognize that, that influence very much when we play other games and just the general Legend of Zelda influence on a lot of things. And we're lucky that we were able to go and and play a lot of these games in their early iterations And Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of video game creators now are in a very similar position as us, a very, you know, that same age where they're like, wow, this is a game I really love. How do I recapture that magic? Yeah, Yeah. there's a little bit of a, a childlike desire to go back and create and capture that magic. And so it's crazy to think about how the Ocarina of Time has influenced the gaming industry in that way. But at the same time, it's not surprising at all. Because it, no. it really is great
0: it's it's a hundred percent that and, you know we see it in every Zelda iteration, breath of the wild, having that fatigue like odometer, i guess to the fatigue circle you have for your stamina to go up as you're climbing. you see that in so many games now, climbing rock walls like link does I mean like so many influences are adapted into everything from low level indie to triple A has been adapted into that and again it's it's that that fearlessness to create and that fearlessness to make what you want and for the audience to respond positively most every time pretty insane
1: and nintendo i think pays attention to a lot of the industry in that regard because they don't want to make a clone of something else Mm -hmm. they i do think incorporate different elements of other games into their games but they're like But we need to put a specific emphasis on how do we make this game different. And that's what makes their games so unique and fun and replayable. And um, I don't know. Ocarina of Time, one of the best. So let's talk about the general reception, of course, assisted by a large marketing campaign. Ocarina of Time was a strong commercial success. In the United States, over 500,000 pre orders were placed, which is crazy for yeah. that era of gaming. Oh, yeah. More than tripling the number of pre orders for any previous video game. And it was awarded the Guinness World Record for most advanced orders for a game. So, really, not exaggerating. Upon release, more than 1 million copies were sold there in less than a week, and in 1998, 2.5 million copies were sold, although it was released only 39 days before the end of the year. It earned $150 million, equivalent to $250 million as of last year, 2021, in U.S. revenues, higher than any Hollywood film in the last six weeks of 1998. It was the best-selling video game of 1998 in the United States, obviously. And Mm -hmm. in Japan, 920,000 copies were sold in that same year, becoming the eighth best-selling game of the year. It reported 386,234 copies were sold in its first week, surpassing the 316,000 first-week sales of Metal Gear Solid. In Europe, it was the fifth best selling game of 1998 with over 39 million euros or $44 million, equivalent to 73 million in 2021, gross that year. And in the United Kingdom, 61,232 copies were sold during its first weekend, becoming the UK's fastest selling title up until it was surpassed by Gran Turismo 2 in 2000. By 2000, Ocarina of Time had sold 7 million cartridges and grossed about 400 million, which once more equivalent to 670 million in 2021 worldwide. During its lifetime, Ocarina of Time for the Nintendo 64 saw 1.14 million copies sold in Japan and 7.6 million copies worldwide.
0: On its initial Nintendo 64 release, Ocarina of Time received critical acclaim. It gained perfect review scores from the majority of gaming publications that reviewed it, including Famitsu, Next Generation, Edge, Electronic Gaming Monthly, GameSpot, and IGN. Metacritic and Game Rankings ranked the original Nintendo 64 version as the highest and second highest reviewed game of all time, respectively, with an average score of 99 out of 100 on Metacritic and 98% from Game Ranking. The reviews praised multiple aspects of the game. Particularly its level design, gameplay mechanics, sound, and cinematics. GameSpot reviewer Jeff Gerstmann wrote that Ocarina of Time is, quote, a game that can't be called anything other than flawless. And IGN called it, quote, the new benchmark for interactive entertainment that could shape the action RPG genre for years to come. Editors of game trailers called it a, quote, walking patent office due to the number of features it contains that became industry. Standard. The graphics were praised for their depth and detail, although reviewers noted that they were not always the best the console had to offer. Game Revolution noted the characters' faces, the toughest graphical challenge on 3D characters, saying that the characters' expressions and animation featured surprising grace. IGN believed that Ocarina of Time improved on the graphics of Super Mario 64, giving a larger sense of scale. Impressive draw distances and large boss characters were also mentioned as graphical highlights. Although excelling in the use of color and the visibility and detail of the environment, reviewers noted that some graphical elements of Ocarina of Time did not perform, as well as Banjo-Kazooie, a game released for the same platform earlier that year. IGN said that the frame rate and textures of Ocarina of Time were not as good as those of Banjo-Kazooie, particularly in the marketplace of Hyrule Castle, which was called Blurry, and I can understand
1: that. That's a fair criticism there, just in the marketplace of Hyrule Castle, but I disagree, I think, with that overall. I think that Ocarina of Time looks just as good as Banjo-Kazooie, which has a lot of um, clipping issues, because that's another game that I love very, very much. Gameplay was generally praised as detailed, with many side quests to occupy players' time. IGN said players would be amazed at the detail of the environment and the amount of thought that went into designing it. IGN praised the cinematics, citing great emotional impact and flawless camera work. EGM enjoyed that Nintendo was able to take the elements of the older 2D Zelda games and translate it all into 3D flawlessly. Nintendo Power cited Ocarina of Time along with Super Mario 64 as two games that blazed trails into the 3D era. The context-sensitive control system was seen as one of the strongest elements of the gameplay. Reviewers noted that it allowed for simpler control using fewer buttons, but that it occasionally caused the player to perform unintended actions. The camera control was quoted as making combat second nature, although the new system took time for the player to get used to. The game's audio was generally well-received, with IGN comparing some of Koji Kondo's pieces to the work of Philip Glass. Many atmospheric sounds and surround sound were designed to effectively immerse the player in the game world. Some reviewers complained that the audio samples used in the game sounded dated. Others considered this a benefit, calling them retro. Game Revolution called the sound good for the Nintendo, but not great in the larger scheme of things, and noted that the cartridge format necessitated MIDI tunes that range from fair to terrible. Pitchfork gave the official soundtrack album a 9 out of 10.
0: And Derek, it's it's a lot to behold, for as some may consider the greatest game of all time. Some, not so much. But, as always Derek, those don't matter. What truly matters is a score you and I give it. So as always, Derek, what do you think of the game and why did we choose it?
1: Well, uh, once again, thank you to the patrons for selecting this game because I really do love The Legend of Zelda as a series and of course, the Ocarina of Time. But even without their influence, I do think that at some point we would have covered this game because we talked about how much, of course, it influenced other titles and how much Legend of Zelda as a whole has influenced the RPG genre. When I think about the structure of Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, I think it's one of my favorite parts about the game and why it's great. Because there's really two halves. There is the beginning of the game where you're a kid and you don't have the option to go back and forth between time. And it's sort of like the most advanced tutorial that you could get at the time. And a lot of video games do this now, where they sort of start you off slow. And then they work you into these bigger situations with more tools at your disposal. But I think that the beginning of Ocarina of Time really worked you in at the perfect pace when it came down to like doing the Deku Tree as it was dying and when it came down to going and visiting the open world you know you got this really slow introduction and you weren't really necessarily limited limited to where you could go either and so you got to get this full glimpse into this really nice childlike successful peaceful land with some darker elements some things that obviously posed a risk mm-hmm. but it It set you up so well for what happened when you turn into Adult Link, sort of against your will. And I love that they let you go back and revisit that stuff just as a general, hey, if you really wanted to just kind of play this relaxing game, you can do that. There's still probably some things that you missed. Or if you want to go into this deeper, darker future, you can do that too. And on top of that, guess what? We're going to make it an important gameplay element. I think that Mm -hmm. that conceptually is such a wonderful design. I love the characters. I love the world that they built. And it didn't matter if I was just, you know, riding around on Ipana, or if I was actually going into different cities and, you know, talking to people or, you know, battling monsters at nighttime or whatever I had to be doing. I always felt like, Stuff that I was doing was meaningful in what was a very, very large map. And this game, I've been giving this review out a lot lately, but it's another 10 out of 10 for me. What about you? As you said, this is this time period of the N64, even though it was less powerful than the PlayStation,
0: even though the games were seen as more kid-like, more kid-friendly, whereas PlayStation is targeting adults. That's the adult console you're going with. I think that's such a misconstrued thing that a lot of people are seeing today is that, yes, they are childlike in terms of color, in terms of blood and gore may not be there. But in terms of story elements, gameplay mechanics, sound design, and just the beauty of playing it, it's, it's hard to rival it. And again, I think it's taken Nintendo a bit to rival these two games of Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time. Really, Mario Odyssey and Breath of the Wild are really, in my opinion, like the true spiritual successors to these two games. Not to say that the games that came between weren't good; they just they never, never really achieved that perfect pairing. That that feel of like, oh yes, this is definitely the upgraded version of this game, and we finally get to feel that. And I love that a lot of kids get to feel that now, too, as if they experienced Breath of the Wild as their first Zelda. What a what an amazing experience to feature that as your first. Because um, for me, it was Ocarina of Time. I never played the originals. Um, I had a Super Nintendo, but I never delved into any of the Zeldas. I was just more Mario Kart on that realm of it and some other random games, Mario World 2. But it wasn't until I got to Ocarina and just fell in love with it and played through you know, the master quest and master mode with it. And then eventually jumped into the updated versions on like the 3DS. And you just get that hit of just fun. It is, it is difficult. There are definitely times where was difficult and frustrating and things could be improved, but for the time, it's amazing. So if I had to give it a review, it would be the amount of Moomoo milk it would take to replace all of that little river that you have to go to with the squid guy shooting the balls. It <laughs> is really frustrating to get across. Um, and then multiply that by the amount of times I mash the A button to not talk to that stupid owl. And then I accidentally talk to the stupid owl again out of 10. It's a good review. I always forget Thank you. That, Thank you
1: very much. that owl's name. Like Gora Kabora. Uh,
0: annoying my time. That's usually the colloquial term that's given in Hyrule. Kapora Gabora.
1: Kapora yes. Gabora. Avada Kedavra. (laughs) Avada Kedavra, yes, exactly. The Voldemort of Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time. (laughs) Yes, of course. Yes. (laughs) Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music was recorded, composed, written, made, however you want to say it, by our friend Evan Barr. And our artwork was given to us by our friend Aaron Shattuck.
0: Beautiful people, and we want to thank those beautiful people over on Patreon. As Derek has mentioned, the ones that select this episode for our September month. Um, we also have plenty of other perks over there. We've got some physical and non-physical rewards. Some might call them digital. Um, as well as our D&D game and our Minecraft server. So be sure to check it out if you have any questions, let us know on our socials. But let's thank those select members today with Sky the Bear, Duststorm, Mr. Choff, Snide T Bird, that LL Gamer guy, Nick Hyman, McChief, Climbing Spork, Mister 1898, Irby Spicy,
1: Lee Tom John, Keller Kane, and Brian Yost. So thank you all so much for your support. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter. We're also on Discord. It is free to join. Alex and I are hanging out in there all the time, and we would love to see you. And as always, you can catch us over on Twitch. You can catch me at Twitch.tv/sourman70.
0: That's twitchtv s o u r Man seven zero and Derek over at twitch.tv slash the baker man 247. That is twitch.tv slash the baker man 247.
1: You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, just drop us a review, it helps us out a lot, and we love to hear from you.
0: And that has been our coverage of the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Do you agree? that this is the best, if not one of the best games of all time. And if not, what is your top game? Let us know on our social channels and uh, we'll be sure to chat to you about it and prove you either right, wrong, or just downright say, (laughs) no, thank you. As always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Kapora Gabora, And this has been Finish the Fight, the gaming podcast.